Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Mealy, Managing Partner at Software Pricing Partners. Today, we're going to be covering three main topic areas. One, pricing as a strategic value lever. Two, usage-based pricing, opportunities and pitfalls. And three, usage-based pricing, where do I start and how do I measure the business impact? Chris, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me. So I started as a founder in the late 90s when I started my own software company, and we were largely on-prem software. And maybe the funny side story is in 08, when we decided to move to the cloud over the market crash of 09, we reinvented our software and asked ourselves the question, if we've streamlined everything else, how do we really start thinking about making a good high growth story with a lot of profitability? And I ultimately hired software pricing partners in 08, and that's actually how I ended up here. Interesting. So you were a customer. and It was. And it's interesting with your career journey, right? You've seen I think multiple incarnations of software deployment models. You've seen it from a on-prem model, and I'm not sure you're quite as quote unquote experienced, i.e. old as I am, but I saw (laughs) software deployment models and mainframes. Then we moved to client server. Then we moved to web apps and we went to SaaS subscription pricing, which was based upon traditional users. And now we've got this trend about consumption and usage-based pricing. Are there any common insights you have across all those different software deployment for pricing models? Yeah, so I started my journey in a COBOL programming, Ray, back in 94. And so maybe not the mainframe, but close. It was what they call CICS screens. And along that way, when I think of consumption, and really it's something that's been at the sort of part of all of this since 1982, is this idea that you know, consumption is not a thing. It's actually a gradient and you can be extreme in your consumption approach. For example, I'll be ridiculous for a moment and say, well, I'm going to charge you every time you log into my software, or I'm going to charge you in five second intervals that every time you use my software, now, no buyer would agree to that. However, that can be a form of consumption and arguably a form of consumption can be, well, I'm going to charge you based on the number of locations that you have and what you're consuming therefore is the number of locations of your facility. And so consumption is a gradient. And I think the big thing that I keep seeing over and over and over is if you get, as we say here, too close to the wire, then selling becomes extraordinarily difficult on a consumption strategy. And so I think many companies that on the surface are touted as successful consumption approaches, actually may be doing something very different on the sales floor and inside their partner channels, which if we really broke it down, has very little to do with consumption. Chris, let's double click down into that because I hadn't thought about it quite like that. And I know I just read an article about HubSpot 
And they kind of modified their pricing. And I won't say it went to pure consumption, but it was from the number of contacts in your database to the number of active or marketable contacts. Is that an example of a gradient? And honestly, how do you think that's went for HubSpot? So when I had my software company, I was one of the first batch of inbound marketing believers, and we were in the remodeling industry. And that HubSpot journey, I can tell you from close personal experience, the manner in which they're counting, in this case, the number of contacts, it just doesn't match with the way that value is extracted. And the simple litmus test that you can just think about is, here we were serving Europe and North America. And if we had a thousand people download in Japan, I mean, we didn't have an operation in Japan. We weren't servicing anybody in Japan. We weren't even selling in that region, but HubSpot would want to charge us for the thousand contacts in the database. And a second example, we had caught wind of Home Depot and literally overnight we had, I think it was close to about 11,000 people download. And this was in their retail and remodeling division. And it would be years before we would penetrate that account in any sort of meaningful way. But guess what happened at the end of the year? At the end of the year, who wanted to get paid for those 11,000 contacts? And then, of course, when we caught wind of Lowe's and ProBuild and others, like it just kept growing. But, you know, these enterprise deals, these whales, you know, they take a long time to go. And so the big message here is that when you are counting the wrong thing, you can actually get very far ahead of your customer in value delivery such that you will be billing for value not yet delivered. And I think HubSpot is a classic example, and there are many others of a model that basically says, I'm charging you by the contact, and therefore I'm saying all contacts are created equal. And anybody that's done any selling can tell you contacts are not all created equal. Some for the reasons I just described, but also for other reasons. In addition, their partners and resellers have horrible challenges. And I think the litmus test doesn't mean it's not a great company. I, I love everything about HubSpot and the culture and the sort of message. But, you know, the practice of the manner by which they have geared their, quote, consumption model, I think the litmus test is pick up the phone, call HubSpot and get on the sales floor and have a conversation with a salesperson. And I'd be willing to bet in under five minutes, you're probably going to hear something like, hey, Ray, it's a really great time to buy software. And I think I can get you a special deal if you can make a decision by the end of April. And right there, you know, the consumption strategy is not working. Because of the lack of pricing integrity? or If the sales floor has already learned that I need to be flexible in price, they are not successful in defending value. And the odds are high that there are some systemic issues in licensing and packaging. It may not even be price point, it just might be in that metric. The problem with consumption, Ray, is that if I get into really large deals and count the wrong thing, next thing you know, I'm saying, hey, it's 17 million a month. And you know, somebody's gonna, on the buying side, laugh you out of the office. So now your list price is 17 million and the salesperson has to say, well, I need to like right size this deal. I need to either let Ray know I can negotiate upfront, like in the former example, or I have to right size this deal maybe down from 17 million to 1 million. And then I'm going to enter the sales process. And then you're going to give me a really hard time with procurement. And then I'm going to land on a net price of 250,000. Now, what does it look like if I took a deal down from 17 million to 250 grand? Now, this is an extreme example, but these are not fabricated examples. These are real examples our customers struggle with. If you took a deal down from that size, I mean, the message you're sending to the buyer is let the rodeo begin. And that's what makes consumption really difficult. That's one of many things that makes consumption really difficult. 
Yeah, well, as we talked about right before we started today's podcast, we could spend hours on this, but let me zoom <laughs> out for just a minute, Chris. And one of the things that I've done, and it might be wrong, is I've associated this whole growing trend as a customer acquisition motion of product-led growth to usage-based pricing. And I know they're not 100% linked, but where would you say that product-led growth as a customer acquisition motion is from a maturity perspective, and then correlate that to how mature is usage or consumption-based pricing for product-led growth companies? Well, I would rewind slightly to say pricing, which collectively how you license, how you package, and how you ultimately charge for your software and what that sort of picture as an integrated form looks like is still very young. We are all, myself included, onboarded in a product market fit orientation and pricing and the, this idea that I'm going to launch a product and then, you know, hey, let's do a quick scramble in the next two weeks and see if we can call somebody and see if we can help put a price on this thing is kind of the status quo right now. And it is an emerging field that pricing is not just a discipline, but it is on par with product management and in fact, intersects directly with product management. And so the idea that you will design the product with how you would package and how you would deliver value and how you would license and charge for those components and what goes in the subscription stream and what should be charged extra and how do we balance that? And if I am dealing with on-prem versus cloud, how do those things kind of play together? Most of this is left tucked under the carpeting in the bowels of the organization where many people struggle with these issues. And very rarely do you see a formal monetization discipline stood up inside of the software company. And the reality is it's a process. This is not a car. You're not creating a car and then it's a static sort of value delivery. If you are creating new features and you have a thing called a roadmap, which just about every software company does, unless we're sunsetting the features, then that begs the question of, well, is the thing that we're creating supposed to be given away? Or is it really the seed of a new product? Or is it really something that I should be charging extra for? And does everybody even need it? Like, I don't want to put too much stuff in the base package. Otherwise, sales starts having issues. And so this challenge of working your way through all of these issues until you formalize that and sort of stand it up on par with product management, which many of our customers are doing, you're sort of destined to always be reactionary. And that that's the problem. That's the challenge. The challenge is that there's a long list of things that you need to think through to do this right. And if you're trying to do consumption, you know, that can go horribly wrong. You know, this is something I really do want to dive into more because I was reading a blog that you had put out in the last few months about the chief monetization officer. And the reason I bring that up is often pricing, packaging, whether it's product-led growth or usage-based pricing or not, sometimes it falls to marketing. Sometimes the VP of sales will walk in and say, we're just not competitive on pricing. We need to change it. Or the CEO has a view of different packaging. So is there a best practice on who and how you can put a pricing strategy together, factoring in all the variables you just mentioned, Chris? Yes. And it depends, I think, on the stage and also the philosophy of the leadership. And let's just assume that we're not sort of fighting to stay in the status quo and we're, we're willing to do things differently. So now we can start to ask the places where monetization might be owned. So let's talk first on some places where it would not be appropriate to be owned. Sales, finance, legal, ops, right? Any place that you decide that you want monetization to be owned needs to have a very well-versed view 
from a variety of directions inside the customer's mind. You don't want to be messing around with Excel spreadsheets and modeling because that's the lure of consumption. Somebody does this transaction model on a spreadsheet and says, oh my gosh, it's going to be a $7.8 billion company. This is amazing. And like reality doesn't set in. I mean, you want in your monetization group input from sales. You know, you want somebody on the sales force saying, look, I'm never going to be able to sell that, Ray. So don't go down that road. And so when we then start to look at younger companies, and when I say younger, we don't have the staff or the dedicated sort of horsepower yet because we launched our company at a time when we didn't organize around that concept. Monetization wasn't on the roadmap. We didn't talk about it with our investors. And now we kind of have our labor model, our staffing model, and we can't hire somebody else. Then the question is, okay, well, we can look at marketing. However, some of the risks with marketing are you tend to view in the marketing world the segmentation stack and deal in language like firmographics. So you tend to think in customers like employee size and other things that fit in databases that we can go pull sample lists of customers and feed into the sales team in the form of marketing qualified leads. But that has nothing to do with monetization, right? Like monetization doesn't have to do with how many employees you have. A great example might be in the workflow arena. You know, if I had onboarding software, you know, I might have an onboarding solution that a lot of people need that stripes across many different industry verticals. So it would be really weird for me to think about monetization in the term of segments that I need to have a package for manufacturing, I need to have a package for healthcare, I need to have a, a package for some other market vertical, and you tend to overcomplicate the world. And so today's CMOs, they deal with the capital P price but that was at a different time and a different makeup. Today's capital P in software company price gets replaced with a capital M monetization. And you have to worry about things like, well, how close to consumption are we going to get? That's licensing. And how are we going to package all this stuff together so we don't overcomplicate it? That's packaging. And what about the price points? And what does this look like for SMB, mid-market, and enterprise? And that is a ton of stuff for a traditional marketing executive to tear through. You need help. And so elevating maybe a VP of monetization or somebody inside the firm to help is a great idea. The other place that it tends to look, which is also a great place and may actually be a better place is in product. And so today's CPO is largely product market fit. And in some larger organizations also carries with it profitability. And it's in that profitability piece that we see monetization crop up. And now, again, this is now tucking it under product or tucking it under marketing. And we would philosophically disagree and instead elevate it to the executive team. It's just too complicated to be tucked underneath another function. But if you're growing and you don't have any other choices, those are two likely places that you could tuck it under. And if you have the ability to make an investment, then formalizing the beginning of a monetization leadership function inside of the company is hugely important, but still an emerging philosophy. And by the way, lots of status quo with disrupting the norm of the executive suite, the C-suite, you know, in general, elevating, you know, it's seen as yet another piece to the puzzle into the executive suite can have a bad reaction in some board rooms and others. But, you know, not having leadership around how you're making money and profits in the company is maybe enough to mention the importance level. Everything around pricing that we're talking about here today, we are messing with the revenue model. We are messing with the valuation of the company. I mean, this is right in the C-suite. Boy, I tell you, the chief product officer idea, I love that. And I kind of correlate it to the chief revenue officer 
though still an early stage of real deployment maturity, was to try to integrate marketing, sales, and customer success to the customer lifecycle to improve the customer experience and thus increase customer lifetime value. The chief product officer for this kind of, I'll say both PLG and usage-based pricing, though I know they're not explicitly linked, forces that person to really think about my go-to-market strategy, how do I actually maximize customer acquisition, profitability, revenue? How do I track all the usage to be able to do better billing and thus better collections? I just love that idea. Are you finding many companies, especially in the SaaS or cloud industry, are actually elevating that CPO to have this responsibility, Chris? Or is it more of a early stage concept from your perspective? I think it's a mixed bag, Ray. You know, it's. I think all this stuff is still relatively early. I think people still joke about the black arts of pricing. And it turns out there's just a ton of science behind all of that art that is now starting to come into fruition with tools and techniques and frameworks and things to think through. There's another reason, by the way, when you tuck it under product or at least, and I'm not saying that you tuck it under product and nobody else sees it. I mean, you still need a cross-functional sort of, you know, you need input from legal, from sales, from sales ops, from, you know, the billing side of the house and customer success. I mean, you you need somebody to drive it, but the monetization function, it's like the glue that sits inside of the revenue model that pulls it all together. And the reason that product is also a great place to start is because you will change your roadmap based on the things that you triage inside of monetization. For example, if I was debating between two components that I might bring to market and maybe one is better cast as a flat fee, an upfront flat fee for customers. But there's another that really is more broader reaching and maybe we could argue it's a percentage upcharge to this consumption approach. Well, then one clearly is going to have better revenue potential than the other and I might reprioritize them. And that reprioritization is really smart and really something that you want to happen because when you bring monetization into the fold, you also do this other thing and uh, you build this thing that we call asset transfer value. And that's not a term we invented that's been around for a while, but asset transfer value typically doesn't include the playbook for monetization. But if I'm at the selling table for my entity and I'm trying to get full value and I can demonstrate that I have a science behind how I monetize my software and now I look at the roadmap for the next year and I can say, these things are going to fold into this kind of addition. This is actually the seed of a new product. Here's how we're going to monetize it. And then I can therefore forecast and put some science behind that. I can transfer that knowledge to the buyer and argue for premium value because I understand how my customers are reacting to my packaging and pricing changes. And that playbook, that knowledge base that you build inside of this entity, if you think about passing an asset of a software company to a new buyer without that, and then think about passing it with that, I mean, it's extraordinary value, right? Because you have a process on, by which you're making money and getting paid fairly for your value. Yes, but even when you do that, one of the biggest challenges I see, especially in large enterprise organizations or government entities that have very hard, maybe even appropriated budgets, even if you can show the value of each incremental unit of work usage, they can't increase their budget. How do you kind of rationalize those two competing dynamics, Chris? Well, if so your scenario is the customer wants to use more, but doesn't want to pay more? 
Yeah, they see the value, right? They know that each incremental unit will add more value to their business, but they're like, my budgeting process says, I can only spend $500,000 a year. I don't care if I use 500,000 units or a million units, it's gotta be a fixed price. How do you rationalize those two competing dynamics? Well, this is the slippery slope. I mean, if the argument is that in those scenarios, we just match to the customer budget and give them the equivalent of more usage than they bought, I think that's a mistake. I mean, if the budget is limited, the scope is limited. It's no different than in services. If I can only afford 250,000 units and I need 500,000, the only alternative for you to match that is to initiate a discretionary discount. Now, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. You can use techniques to limit and term limit that, for example, so that you don't keep doing that year over year. But in general, if procurement is saying I have a budget of X, then the question is, well, what is it that fits inside of X? If your approach is a philosophical underpinning that, well, if you tell me the story that the budget is limited and therefore if I need two X units, I can only pay for X units and then you give me the two X units, then a pricing model you don't have. Yeah, well, it's similar to, I'll make kind of a comparison to the cell phone bill. Remember when cell phone plans first came out, it was, hey, we want to have low friction. There wasn't even always a monthly subscription. It was really low. Maybe it was $9.99 and it gave me 50 minutes or 100 minutes of talk time. And then that one month I got my bill and it was $250. I'm like, I'm not doing this again. I want a fixed rate. And we saw pricing models go to, hey, if you want 100 minutes, you pay this much per month. And if you need 500 minutes, you pay that much. Do you see this same kind of packaging happening in B2B SaaS and cloud software to try to eliminate the pain of overage? Well, so I think overage is a different concept that is also problematic. There's actually a really kind of comical model. It's in the online learning space and they call it, I think they call it the active user model. So you tell me if this seems fair, Ray. Here's how it works. Now, just remember this started with company number one who like HubSpot and others made up their scheme, right? They're going to count active users and then everybody else hopped in and guess what they did? They copied it. So now we have a whole ecosystem and here's how it works. You estimate your number of active users who are going to take your course online. Now you might say, well, how do I know how many people are going to take? And I say, well, sorry, that's the way it works, right? So then you estimate 250. Now, if 250 people don't take your course and let's say 150, you just paid for an extra 100 users. Sorry, Ray. But here, get a load of this. It's even more fair because if you guesstimated 250 and 300 people took your course, I'm going to charge you 1.5x the rate. I'm going to charge you overage. I'm penalizing you for using more of my software. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing from the buyer's perspective, but everybody in that ecosystem has come to know, maybe not love it, but they deal with it because that's the only game in town, which just makes it ripe to be disrupted, right? So if I would take overage on the side and just say, you know, in general, we want to encourage our customers to use more. We don't really want to punish them because what's really happening in that model is you're punishing them for a misestimate, but you don't even have the tools to help them make a really great estimate, which is one of the hallmarks of a great consumption strategy. You should have a nice library and other things so that I don't make a misestimate. And by the way, if I make a misestimate, you shouldn't be punishing me for that. That's almost akin to taking advantage because now I've got your system embedded in my other systems and now you're billing me overage. I mean, that's the stuff that just makes people go crazy, right? Buyers just start. And if you bought in that context, you would go crazy too. 
So that's the overage. So now I'm going to pause, Ray, and have you repeat the first part of the question. Well, I think I'm going to rephrase the question because I'm known for wanting to get into the details. And for our listening audience, sometimes I need to force myself to pull back. So what I've heard so far is there's a lot of variables and factors you need to consider before you implement a consumption or usage-based pricing model. And there's a lot of nuances. So if I tried to step back and tell our listening audience who's for the first time considering for moving from a user-based subscription model to maybe more of a consumption or usage-based model, what are the three to five kind of competencies and skill sets I need to make sure I have in my company before we even start having these discussions in any serious way? Is that a fair question? I think so. So, you know, the number one thing that, so remember, you're going to be now, let's paint up the picture in a little bit more detail. So we have an ongoing entity as a software company, they have not been doing consumption, but now they're thinking about doing consumption. The first piece of the thing that you have to decide, and this is not something that you want to rush, is what is it that I'm going to count? And there's this really big misunderstanding I think, in the concept of usage, because that's not really what you're monetizing. And so people just think, well, every time I use this in the software, the customer must be getting value, but often the customer may not be getting value or may not be getting value at the same rate of extraction of every time they use that feature. And so if you think about all the different ways you could license your software, you could do anything. You could count anything on a consumption basis. The ridiculous example earlier of the number of times you log in, or I could count, you know, there's kind of a funny joke that if you wanted to create for an IT buyer at the bank, you could literally charge based on the cumulative weight of the IT department, which by the way, roughly equates to number of users, but nobody would buy on that basis. And the point of that analogy is you can count anything provided the customer agrees that it's reasonable and rational. So until you determine what it is that you're going to count, only then can you go out and say, well, how much of those things have all my other customers already been using? And that is a bit of a journey for many companies because maybe you can't see it because it's on-prem. Maybe it's in the cloud or in a service center and you can see it, but you can only see it for a small portion of customers. So you don't really have like a lot of data. Or maybe you need six more months on the roadmap to even be able to glean what those counts might look like. And until you have that under your purview or under your understanding and you kind of have a good set of data by which to even start the journey, it's relatively pointless to really go any further, right? Because you're going to spend a huge amount of time talking about all these wonderful ideas of consumption conceptually, but you don't have the internal know-how to pull it off. Nobody could even build a model unless you want to make up something on the fly. And by the way, you can do that. We have a launch pricing line where we have to fabricate things because the software has never been sold before. But if you've already been selling the software, the journey to consumption should be a very methodical, thoughtful slow journey, not a rushed, oh my gosh, you know, June is when we're launching and we need to be on consumption. That's the stuff of nightmares. So those are the two that first come to mind that I would focus heavily on. Okay, that's great advice, but let's say I do have a thousand customers and I'm thinking about, I want to go to usage-based pricing because my investor said I should look at it. So I do the two things you mentioned. I identified what am I really going to count that hopefully is aligned to customer value. And I actually have access to that particular variable. At what point do you go out and test this with existing customers or potential customers earlier or later in the process? So we would call this customer transition. And I think the mistake that is often made 
is the first well you go back to is your existing customers. And that well that you're going back to is a mixed bag. Some people bought yesterday, some people bought two years ago, some people bought 10 years ago, if it happens to be on-prem. So if you take your new consumption strategy and you plow it into that arena, it's going to be hugely problematic. And it violates the best practice that we hold near and dear here, which is on any transition to new pricing, you should hold the protection of legacy revenues as the torch, sort of I always viewed it as the Olympian with the torch jogging up to light You know, at the start of the Olympic Games. I mean, that is the torch that should be held high. The worst thing you can ever do is destabilize your legacy revenues. So ideally, you may not always have this choice rate, but ideally you would have a new customer segment or hopefully a cloud edition that isn't like an extension of an on-prem capability, but it could run standalone. If you were an enterprise and trying to dislodge something in SMB, you know, it's something that's net new where you can begin to test and get experience. And there's lots of ways to roll out controlled tests. The thing that you don't want to do, which I think there is a case study on this. I think it's one of the Harvard case studies and it's Basecamp. And so Basecamp, the case study talks about the price testing that they did. And the price testing went something like this. Well, I have a pool of people that bought at, let's say a hundred dollars. And then I'm just going to see what happens at $200 and surprise. I mean, you didn't have to run a test to tell that the demand wouldn't be there. So at $200, everybody bought a lot less, but now we're done and we're sort of moving forward. But what happens to all the people that paid 200? And this is the problem when we mix and match B2C and B2B. We focus exclusively on B2B. In the B2C world, you and I are not going to be sitting, I'll make it up because I want to be on a flight even though I can't right now for obvious reasons. We're going to be sitting in first class. Do you think that you and I would be chatting about the price we paid on our ticket? Probably not. No way. It's socially awkward, right? But if you are and I are sitting in first class and we both found out that we use HubSpot, Do you think that you and I would start comparing what that was like and ultimately figure out what we paid for the services and software? Most likely. You bet. (laughs) How the flight was and how many drinks. Yeah. And then imagine what happens when when I say, well, I'm in base camp and I paid 100 and you go, what? I paid 200. And that's the problem in B2B with pricing because it is linked to your brand. And if you violate market fairness where you don't treat customers fair. There were two people bought the same thing, but they had wildly different net prices. If you violate that, you put data points out in the market. People and buyers find out about that. Today's enterprise buyers especially employ competitive intelligence research capabilities, and they find that out. And this is the stuff that destroys brands and it creates a nasty environment for sales. And so you just got to be super careful when you're messing with price. In addition, on top of a pandemic, you know, great time to revisit your pricing policy. Some pricing policies pre-pandemic may be no big deal, but when you layer a pandemic on top, all of a sudden you can be seen as being predatorial, right? So you really got to pay attention and be very, very prudent and careful and thoughtful when messing with the pricing, including applying your brand new consumption strategy to your existing customers. You know, Chris, like I I mentioned earlier, I could talk for hours on this, but for our listening audience, we need to kind of wrap up here. So could I ask, do you have a framework or maybe it's what advice would you give to two types of listeners? One, I have an existing kind of flat fee usage-based pricing, but I do believe I could go to usage-based pricing. What advice would you give to them? And is there a framework they should follow? And two, to that newer startup that doesn't really have customers yet, but they're thinking about how do I acquire my first 10 or 50 customers and how do I price? Is that advice different? 
Yes, it is. Okay, so if you are in the first example, the flat fee, and then thinking of moving to usage, you are likely further on in the evolution of the business model than you are obviously than the startup. And so different frameworks would come to play. And again, I think it just goes back to, you know, anytime that you can get some expert guidance on this, it doesn't have to be us, but I'm a big believer that the space is complicated enough. You need to get expert guidance on that, by the way, including benchmarks and other things that you would be shooting for, because those benchmarks could be really powerful KPIs that you need to measure the ultimate outcome of your efforts, right? To make sure to measure and monitor and test the results. But if you're trying to move from a flat fee structure to a consumption-based structure, I think one of the places that you could naturally start with would be if you happen to have a cab, a customer advisory board. And those are typically closer. If you don't have that, you likely have a, a handful of customers that product management is just closely tied to that you could have a pretty safe conversation in the sense of saying, look, we're not going to migrate you over to this on day one, and we're not changing your pricing. We're always going to take care of you. But we're thinking about these concepts and what's your reaction to that? Because what they, on the buying side, the customer who's already bought, which by the way, customers already bought, so they understand more of the value you deliver. If the customer hasn't bought yet, well, they haven't experienced the value. So there's no way for them to really comment on the value. You know, software is an experienced good. You have to use it to understand its full value. So you start there, anchor yourself. This is why when we talked, putting the chief monetization function underneath the product is a great place to hunt because the place that you're hunting is not on the way in which you currently gather requirements on product. What you're trying to do is you're saying, okay, so now that I know that you need to automate this workflow, that's fine, Ray, but now let me take it one step further and say, once we automate that workflow, how will you do things differently with your customer? How will you drive value? And that starts to give you all of the gems and pieces and parts to what monetization is all about and all of the corners and hidden little pockets of value that you're likely delivering that you have no idea that you're delivering. And so my recommendation is get with a few key customers and just try to enumerate all of the different places that you drive value because that will be a very enlightening exercise for most. And that's typically how you'd start the journey anyhow. Now, if we oscillate over to the startup, they don't have anything yet. They may not even have a customer yet. And so in that example, first, we have a resource center that both audiences can come to anytime. So they're happy to reach out at softwarepricing.com. But on the startup side, especially, you know, I always tell them, and I teach this down at some of the schools here in Charlotte, obliterate, obliterate the term beta. Just eliminate it from your category and just replace it with the term early access. Because people don't pay for beta, but people will pay for early access. And the fundamental thing that the startup company is testing, you know, they're all onboarded in product market fit, right? So they're testing, they think they're testing the ability for the software to perform its function. That's kind of like you showing up to work on time. Like that's kind of expected in today's product atmosphere. What you should be testing is your ability to extract money out of the market and how difficult and at what rate you can do that. And early access is all around trying to get an angle on the value that you're delivering and the kind of company that you want. Are you gonna have a $100, a $10,000, a $100,000 or a multi-million dollar enterprise play? Like what's at the core of that business that you're building and what is it gonna look like? And then gearing the early access program to give you that feedback. For example, I wanna have a $10,000 package and my customer or my prospect doesn't wanna pay it. So in early access, I wanna ask them, well, what's missing? You know, this starts to fill my roadmap so I could substantiate more value. And it's that hitting the ground with that initial monetization lens day one 
and not waiting until we're done with beta to then kind of take a guess at what our pricing might look like before we launch. That is great advice, Chris. So unfortunately, we got to end today's show. And I want to do that with a couple of questions to let the listening audience to get to know Chris a little bit better. So first of all, is there a CEO or company that you're following that you think other people should really watch what they're doing this year? I would reframe my answer to say there are certain characteristics that I find really appealing in today's CEOs and companies. So first is understanding that the best gift that you can give employees is quality time back with their families. You know, this idea that we're growing like crazy and I fire up my new entity with great investment capital and I, I'm on you know 24 by seven and every new time zone fills up my employees' inboxes with more and more stuff. And in the end, although our listeners may not be old enough, you know, we turn our employees into Soylent Green. I don't know if you know that reference or not, but that was basically turning people into food from an old movie that was pretty famous. I've lived that. I think it's horribly destructive for many reasons. And in fact, having the opposite of that here at Software Pricing Partners, I can tell you, if you give them a normal work week and you give them time with their families, amazing. You create space for innovation, which is what you're really trying to do. I would also say the second characteristic that I would look for is understanding that too much of anything can be toxic, including growth. I came from Ernst & Young. I watched a wonderful mission called Future State 97, and then somebody decided they wanted to be a billion in revenues by the year 2000, and the whole thing became a very different animal that wasn't really fun to talk about. And then the final one, which probably should be the first one, is integrity. And this is why I love market fairness and CEOs that take charge of their philosophy of pricing or their philosophy of how they'll treat customers with integrity, which again means if two customers come in and buy the same thing, they get roughly the same price. And so I love companies that adhere to those strategies. And you can clearly see that companies that adhere to that outperform their competitors who don't adhere to it. And so those three things exist in pieces, parts at many companies, but not all of them. So I, I look for those characteristics though. Chris, would you feel comfortable highlighting a company that you think does a great job of pricing with integrity? I would say go to our portfolio page and there's lots of them that do that. And that doesn't mean that everybody is perfect, but everybody who's come through the process here is striving in some way, shape or form to treat customers fairly and uniformly. And it's, it's a tough road. It's a difficult thing to do, especially if you've already been entrenched in the older disciplines where, you know, we kind of charge what the customer is willing to pay on a customer by customer basis, right? We're, we're sort of charging a little bit more because he's more willing and charging a little bit less because maybe she's not as willing and, and that's that's rapidly disappearing, I think. And that hopefully will be gone from our ecosystem in the next 10 years. Is there a tool or product that you think every SaaS company should be looking at using? So interestingly enough, and the one that I'll mention is horribly underpriced, but I use SaneBox, S-A-N-E-B-O-X. And what it does is it basically trains your inbox to give you your sanity back. And I enjoy a manageable inbox. And it takes a little bit of time to kind of teach it how to do what it does. And it's brilliant. It's simple. If I lost that tool, my inbox would explode to a level of degree that would just be unmanageable now. So I think that one's a great one, especially for salespeople and really for executives too. As you're saying, Box. And my last question, what advice would you give that recent college graduate or very early career professional who wants to be a successful either founder or executive? Any advice you have for that early career cohort? This would be advice that was shared to me 
early on and I had really long hair, but that was because I couldn't afford a haircut, right? <laughs> and I kept asking the question, like, how do you get investment capital and how does that work? And the advice that I got at the time was spend more time understanding your customer and understanding not just what they want to buy, but how they want to buy it. Of course, that touches on monetization that we talked about here today. Here's what I see is a huge mistake with founders early on. They get a lot of traction in the form of conversation, not a deal that's actually won. And then they want to go raise capital. And what they don't realize is right before they raise capital, somebody's going to say, so, you know, which customers have bought right before we close? And if nobody's really bought and you spend all your time on the roadshow, you know, you can expect an adjustment to the valuation or maybe an adjustment to the terms that take away some of your flexibility. And so spend all your time. You'll spend just as much time raising capital as you will signing another customer on. I've lived that. I can tell you that from personal experience. And so spend all your time getting the next customer to buy. And when that happens enough, there'll be people lined up out the door to make an investment. Great advice, Chris. And thank you so much for being our guest today on the Metrics of Major at Podcast. So listeners, that's Chris Mealy, the CEO of Software Pricing Partners. If you are enjoying our guests and the topics we discuss here in the podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast and also please provide your comments and rank us. We really, really appreciate that. Chris, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.